Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today, my guest is Daniel Ferens, director and writer behind the new film, Eileen Wuornos, American Boogie Woman. The film will have its release on VOD on October 8th and on DVD October 15th. I had a great time chatting with Daniel. This is the third time I've had the chance to speak with him, and it was really a pleasure to speak with him this time because I think this is probably uh, Daniel's best work to date. Uh, this is something I highly recommend um, checking out this weekend. Um, quick note about the episode when it starts out, you'll notice that me and Daniel are mid-conversation. Um, we were talking about my son who had a direct COVID exposure the week before. And when I jumped on the call, the PR person who set the interview up was asking how my son was. And then me and Daniel started talking about that uh, for a few minutes. So the interview starts mid conversation at that point. My son is fine. Uh, He had that direct exposure, but um, he's had two negative tests now and he's doing great. So it was just a scary moment last week. And I kind of uh, ended up canceling a bunch of the interviews that I had scheduled. And yeah, Emma was just checking in with me and Daniel was just making sure everything was okay. So if you are looking for something to watch this weekend, I highly recommend you check out Eileen Wuornos. I want to thank Bookmans for sponsoring the show and want to thank Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. That you guys have gone through such a horrible stress, but anyway, here we no, go. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all well. That's all that matters. Everything's good now. He's fine. He's healthy. That's all I care about. It was just last week. I was kind of in that place where I oh boy. didn't care about anything else. It was just, oh, uh, I, yeah. I, can't even imagine. So, you know, I know, I get it. Well, I'm glad that things worked out. Yeah. Thank you very well, much. It stays that way. <laughs> and one of the highlights of that week though, was getting to watch your film. This is, oh. the, <laughs> I, honestly, this is, I think the best thing you've done today. This movie oh, that's was, so nice. was phenomenal. I was genuinely shocked by your decision to make like this film noir filtered through kind of like a <laughs> 70 sleazy early eighties lens. And it was fucking perfect i love this movie so. oh thanks man thank you so much so kind of you you know this was it was risky in a lot of ways not the least of which is that you know we're telling a chapter of a story of that of a, of a real life figure once again who was incredibly you know in my view sad and tragic but that that story had been told almost like in the definitive way with yeah. a monster patty jenkins monster with Charlize theron you know scoring you know the best actress deservedly so for for tackling that role um you know that in itself is sort of like oh boy you guys are you guys got some serious cojones here you know to try to tell a different version of that um so the and so my answer to that was like let's not even try because that's not like we can't nobody's gonna ever approach that again it's that, that was lightning in a bottle it was all the right things coming together but yet there was this other little piece like almost like a footnote to Eileen's story that I thought was so interesting and the fact that nobody has yet ever dramatized it it's only ever mentioned sort of as a footnote to any of her the books or biographies written about her um the documentaries mention it very much in passing I thought wow what a what an interesting side note or sidebar you know kind of like a detour in her life that Mm -hmm. she took and for those who don't know that she in her very early 20s 
hitchhiked her way down to Florida from Michigan, where she lived or where she was raised. She was already involved in drugs and prostitution. And, and this young woman has already kind of gone down this dark road in her life. And that being the victim of some pretty horrific circumstances and an environment that just treated her like she was worth nothing. And in any event, she made her way to Florida and in short order met and married this much, much older man named Louis Fell. The only thing that was ever been told in all of my research is that she married Lewis, that in during that short marriage, she was involved in barroom fights, was arrested, and that she beat her husband with his own cane, and that he annulled the marriage and never spoke of it again. And everything else was sort of an open kind of canvas to sort of invent and tell it. And so my approach was, how do you tell a story like that? There's so little known. You can't, you can't do it like a documentary. Here's the, all the pieces because they don't, you don't know what they are. Um, so I thought, how, how would Eileen tell that story? And Eileen was sort of saw herself as this larger than life character in a way. She was enamored with classic films, noir, Betty Davis, Eva Gardner, the list goes on. And, and she, you know, in, in this telling of the story, it's like she puts herself in her own story as a, as a, almost like a film noir character. And so that was, to me, an interesting idea for a film. And you, it's such a smart thing to focus this from her point of view, because she was an, as about as unreliable a narrator oh. as you could have. <laughs> right. And then, so it gives you license to really just kind of go off the rails and stay within those those nine week period that we know where it began, we kind of know where it ended and you can yeah. paint the rest of it in yourself. And what a fun area to play in because you, the conceit of the film kind of makes it so that it can get wild. And you're really just telling right. her story from her point of view without right. being insulting to any of the people that were involved in it, which is right. that's a tough right. line to draw. Always a tough line. You know, I've been criticized and called all kinds of things, which I find like ironic in a sense where, you know, I know that every day, every moment of every, you know, project that I've ever been involved in, the, we start off with almost like a group prayer with a kind of like a sensibility of like, we know we're tackling something really important, really challenging and, and something that has affected some, some real lives. I think people forget the very long list of films sometimes that have depicted similar tragedies, um, you know, and say, so, oh, you can't take creative license. I'm like, well, I don't think there was a Rose and Jack on Titanic. Uh, <laughs> so anyhow, whole other conversation. But that being said, but yeah, yeah, I think it, did, it gave us some leeway, but it also was a way of telling a story where Eileen was the, the hero in a way of her own story, because I think she saw herself as that. You know, I think that was part of her disconnect from reality, you know, especially as things went and she got closer and closer to her execution. I think she became more, her mind became more fractured. So yeah. I thought, like, where do you place this? And I thought, well, place it the eve of her execution. And she's kind of baiting this reporter that comes to kind of get a final scoop from her. And she's just messing with it through the whole thing. You know, and there's grains of things of, of thing of truth that she's kind of threading through it, but she's just letting the story snowball as it goes along. So at the end, it just becomes this kind of, <clears throat> you know, gothic kind of 
tribute to Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? So it's, it's again, I, I hope people understand that it's not intended to be a, a documentary or even a depiction of the actual reality. It's, it's really a, a, a movie seen through the eyes of, of Eileen facing her own mortality. And it's, there's a lot of fun to be had within the way that you crafted this story. Oh. <laughs> um, and, and it is something that I can be a little, I can be sensitive to those things when something feels like it's exploitation, yeah. but this doesn't have that feeling. It feels like you were trying to tell this story and the there's really, if you didn't cast the right person here in the center of the film, it wouldn't work. And Peyton List, I, I had, you were talking about the balls that it takes to just take on the film, but then for her to take on that role, oh, um, yeah. it, it's not unlike when Steven Webber or, you know, does the remake of The Shining made for TV. And you're like, well, right. it, whatever you think of it, that took a huge pair just to even say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and reprise Jack Nicholson. Why not? Oh, so yeah. For her to you do know, that. Yeah, that's iconic. It is. And, you know, I, I think that was never lost on her. Um, but again, I, I, I just the, the way I told her to approach it was bring bring your heart to it, bring the good and the bad and the ugly and the, and the sensitive and like all of the things that she is as a person and not try to replicate something else because that I just, and I also feel like we did have a little bit more leeway with it because Eileen didn't start off as this, you know, monster, right? She was young once too. Um, she had dreams, she had aspirations. I think she was just, again, the product of a, of a, of a terrible environment. I mean, we don't sugarcoat it and say, oh, she was just this wonderful, you know, young girl and went to the prom and like her life was never that. Right. Uh, she was always streetwise and, and violent and always playing different angles to get what she wanted, whether it was knocking somebody out or uh, starting a, a fight in a bar room or stealing something from somebody. I mean, she was always, you know, because that's how she was raised. You know, she was kind of a product of streets you know, and, the, and, the, and the difficult life she had as a child anyhow but so Peyton was was like a light on the set I will say she was a joy to have uh she and I have kind of a similar weird sense of humor <laughs> and, and the jokes were flying um the practical jokes in a way too mm -hmm. so she kept things light and and her youth I think brought a lot of uh, levity to things and I and I love that she, she was just a joy to work with and um I'm just proud of her that she took this on. I think she did a really good job and she played it in a way that um, she wasn't trying to repeat or, or step on anybody else's toes. Well, that was the first note that I took, you know, kind of going through watching this. <clears throat> and it was when I saw her in her, I've seen Cobra Kai and a couple other yeah. <laughs> things that she's done. And I've always enjoyed her, but the, those roles only ask so much of her there's just actually more range than you would expect in that show yeah. It, yeah. it actually and especially of her character she's asked a lot of her um right. but it fits into a zone and in this this is totally outside that and she's right. the real deal she's great i had oh, no thanks. idea her yeah, range she, she would love great. to hear that yeah she's you know like of course she's nervous about it and she knows she's there's there's always going to be that faction of you know critics or the audience, the internet audience, I call them, that are going to, you know, stomp on you. But, um, you know, I think she went in with it, into it with the right frame of mind, and she has a big heart, and uh, she, she knows how, she, she knows how to play characters that you love to hate, but you also kind of love her at the same time, uh, and you want to see what's going to happen next, and what is she going to do, and 
and I think she she has a real command and I think it was um it was great to see her in a starring role and I and I think she was brave to do it and I'm just glad that I got to meet her and work with her before she you know becomes a, a Marvel superhero or something <laughs> well she has this unique ability to play somebody who is a victim but never sees themselves as a victim that finds yeah. strength in that in the right. way they're acting out so you get i think that's where that empathy as an audience that we have for mm. her where she's able to bring that to a role which is not something that's necessarily easy to do no no i think she does have those again it's like colors of her personality and i like that she played it just like a kind of a weird childlike innocence to her at times and then there's this kind of rage that kind of boils up and comes out and i think she does it really well and um uh it was weird seeing her in those moments because I would be like, oh, <laughs> you know, you scared me on that one. And then we just, she'd say something silly and we'd start laughing again. Uh, it, but, but it's like, it's the entire cast though, also that really works oh, here. Yeah. Like I think Lydia's great in it. Tobin, it's nice to see him doing this version of the, of him. You don't get to see him play this side very often. Right, he is yeah, yeah. He's always and, sort of like, since Saw, he's always been cast as that kind of like really dark, menacing character and I, I just thought it was great to give him and I wanted like that elder statesman on the set somebody who would bring that experience and that kind of uh, gravitas in a way to the whole thing you know? and he was just great and we didn't have him for the whole you know shoot but but the days in which he was there we just it just felt like we were very protected and we were in you know I felt like I was in good hands with him and <laughs> I, I never felt intimidated he was incredibly collaborative and kind and um just we we really were like a little you know like everybody says they're family but this was particularly because it was such a small crew such a small cast that we all kind of had to band together and, and get this done especially with uh you know the, the climate we're in with covid and everything else it was not easy but uh we stuck so it you out. shot this during covid then this yeah. oh yeah. wow yeah uh bundy was the first one first independent movie to shoot at the height of the pandemic last summer summer of 2020 and this came right after that wow so at that point we thought oh we got through bundy this is going to be easy and it, it was just as hard in fact maybe in some ways harder because we had a lot more locations this one. so you're yeah. dealing with you know external forces you know the outside world a little bit more it seems like that would be the time to make your haunted house picture not a um not, right? not make that's the time to experiment with that zoom call movie not not the time right. to do yeah, some, like yes. a period piece with all these in retrospect i was like my i wish i'd had been able to dust off some script that i had had sitting around <laughs> but, but i think we're going to see a lot of scripts that were written written during the pandemic come about and, and see how contained they all are um I know it was it was it was a bold move because there we were out on the ocean and we're sailing and we're doing there were there were just a lot of elements of this movie that were a challenge not only because it was such a you know small budget and a short schedule but you know because we had to protect everybody um, so it was really like doing things in shifts and everybody working in separate bubbles just to make sure that we didn't cross contaminate is that is that the right word yeah yeah <laughs> just in case you know somebody came to set. And didn't you know, you know, had had interacted with the outside world, and we didn't want anybody bringing anything to our world during the making of the film. That's that's always the key, you know, it's just to kind of contain everything and everyone so that we're not exposing ourselves to something that's uh, going to shut us down because we couldn't afford to be shut down. <laughs> no, and so. you you also layer on top of that um, <laughs> this these visual homages, which I was picking up things all over the place. I mean, the oh. cycle one is very clear, 
Yeah, but there was right. there were there, there were things that were just like, um, is this playing with like, is that Tony Scott? Like, what is it? Like, there's these, ah. these elements that I'm seeing, like when you're on the water specifically, it brought that to mind. And I'm thinking, mm. like, okay, he's doing all these different um, things throughout this film. And I'm that one mm. may have been like a little bit too specific that I was probably off on it, but it felt like you were um, a little like, bit. I mean, listen, you always drop in the things you love, you know, of course, Tony Scott was an amazing director. Um, Maybe that wasn't consciously in my mind, but sure, you know, we're always yeah. like, as writers, as creative people, you're always kind of like pulling in elements of things that you love and you know, and and I think we're, everybody's always repeating something else, you know, so yeah, I mean, there were very definite, you know, nods to, uh, you know, so many different uh, noir films, uh, certainly like William Friedkin was an inspiration, you know, from films that he did in the 70s, especially sorcerer was that something that you were thinking about bit. yeah that's a good okay. yeah that's a good example i mean i don't know if there was something specific from sorcerer but again like the films of that era i mean i even think of like dog day afternoon and i think sure. of, of network and and just the kind of the raw kind of you know it's it's a little bit messy it's not it's everything's not so perfectly composed and but as the movie goes on it becomes a little more composed and it starts off a little like we're in this weird world of kind of like, you know, people driving around in old beat up pickup trucks and things like that and, and kids on a beach and things. But then as the movie goes on, it kind of takes on a little bit more of like the the the, the night becomes more kind of a steel gray. And, you yeah. know, and, I, and we really kind of played with that color palette a little bit. So so that was I'm glad you picked up on some of the homages. That was that was, that was definitely intentional. Well, it, it's something where when you watch movies from that era, like the late 70s early 80s in that time period um this is pre-digital so you kind of have what you had color correction could only take you so far so you would have things that would look really all over the place that Mm -hmm. you know by today's standards um so you couldn't go back and have everything look that consistent and so when you're doing that now um it feels like a choice that you're heading in that direction more than everything is balanced and i there's something that gives I don't know what that is. It's almost unconscious that it feels more real in that sense, which doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. But you know, when you go outside, oh, it's yeah, going to have it different light. It's going to have different colors. It's going to. It's not going to. Yeah. I mean, of course, like a movie like this that we shot on the it's a, a newer camera called the Red Komodo um, mm-hmm. and a you six know, K camera, so it did give us a lot of room in post to kind of play with things and really like dial back on certain things and really amp up other things so it really gave us a lot more choices um but uh yeah i mean i was even thinking of like the cinematography and jaws sure this, you yeah. know so in fact i even had them construct me a, a jaws uh fence you know like they have on the beach in jaws and like, <laughs> well, how can you like how can you yes no absolutely i know exactly what you're talking about how can uh how can you not though if you have a couple people out a couple teenagers drinking on the beach in the middle of the night it's how can you not be thinking about jaws right of course i mean listen i'm not comparing what we have or we do to anything like that but you know you draw inspiration from all those things and i think that all of those things were very intentional in this film and you know you always kind of you know it's they say write what you know but i think it's almost too like direct what you know you like take take the best of what you love and 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 bring it all together and see how it works so i can't say that there was one specific influence for this movie it was probably like a big grab bag of things i've mentioned so many weird 
things yeah. that don't really go together. Jaws with like, you know, double indemnity. <laughs> I don't know if those things, you know, mesh, but, uh, but well, those they, are, you know, some of the influences for sure. But they do. If you look at, I'm, if you go through and look at the Blu-rays that are on my wall, both of those are there. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be all Carpenter, you know, you have to have right. some Barbara Stanwyck in there. You have to have of some course. other things you have to mix. And I think all of us are consumers of multiple things like that. Now you can just like one thing and love one thing and keep very narrow on it. But most of, of us are right. kind of all over the map. And I think that we're more open than maybe sometimes we're audiences are more willing to take in these different styles than we think yeah yeah and i just again you you just you experiment and you try different things and you hope you see what what hopefully works and you know some things you know listen i mean we're you know some of these things are limited by budget and time and all of that but um you know that's why you know when i approach it it's like kind of keep it as contained in a world that you can limit the number of, of characters um but I think, you know, again, remaining true to the heart of who Eileen was as a as a person and the desperation that she felt, I think, at the end, she was almost like a trapped animal in a cage. I mean, it just, and I thought if somebody came to her on the, and, and, and truly uh, uh, Nick Broomfield, the very famous uh, documentarian, did interview her yeah. um, the night before she was executed. And, and you know, she kind of came unhinged and during that interview. And I thought that was an opportunity. Maybe there's a piece of that footage we never <laughs> saw where she expanded upon this weird, like again, a little known chapter of her life. And I wanted to explore that. I just thought it was an interesting um, piece of her life that, I mean, I've just never seen a movie about a serial killer, which she was. Um, although I think that term is used in a weird way with her. It's just- It doesn't seem like appropriate a for or a dog. Her, though. She wasn't doing it for like some sort of like sadistic, I think, pleasure. I think she was doing it in retaliation for the things that had happened to her. Right. Anyhow, but I but I thought somebody like that, kind of working, you know, and, and being trapped in this cage, literally, um, and giving her the chance to kind of expand upon her own story was, was just a cool, interesting way to go. And I've never seen a story or a movie where a serial killer tells a part of their life where like, hey, you know, one time I was rich and <laughs> could have been, you know, really somebody to, you know, high, Florida's high society. And she really could have been had she been emotionally capable of accepting it. Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So after talking with Mika, I went into Bookman's and I was dead set on finding a film. Didn't really care which one. I was pretty open to it, uh, to seeing a film that was filmed in Tucson. And there's quite a few. Um, obviously, all the big westerns that everyone knows and then kind of these 80s comedies um, like what was it? Uh, Can't Hardly Wait and Revenge of the Nerds, a bunch of films like that. And then some more forgettable ones, although some that have really big followings like The Wraith with Charlie Sheen. All these movies came to mind. Um, there was also, I think, was it the My Science Project? Uh, I think that was the name of the movie where there was a, a time machine. They filmed that out by the Boneyard, um, the airplane graveyard in town. Can't I can't remember the name of that one. I think that was it. But I'm pretty sure they filmed that here and I haven't seen it in 
God, probably 20 years now. So, but I was open to really anything. And when I started looking through the films, I came across something that I hadn't seen in a really long time. And it's a movie that I absolutely loved. And I'd almost kind of forgotten about this one. And I think that this is a film that a lot of people have forgotten about. Uh, it's a 1999 film or 1995 film by Sam Raimi called The Quick and the Dead. That's uh, a Western that he did uh, starring Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, notably, this is the first American film that Russell Crowe did, and it's an amazing performance. I mean, obviously, Gene Hackman is great here. Uh, Sharon Stone actually does a great job as the uh, <laughs> her version of the grizzled loner at the center of the film. And it's written by Simon Moore, um, who notably, I think he did the BBC version of Traffic that was later turned into uh, the film by Steven Soderbergh. This was the BBC miniseries. He wrote the screenplay for this. And I think Joss Whedon also uh, worked on the screenplay. But this is an amazing film. It's crazy violent. It's a lot of fun. The cinematography in it is some of the most creative um, that you'll see in a big budget movie like this. So it was Sam Raimi took all of those tricks that he learned in uh, on the Evil Dead films, Army of Darkness, these more low budget films, and brought those skills that he had <laughs> he had developed to this big budget western that at the time was critically uh, panned and it was also kind of a financial disaster. And I think that's why it's a film that's really overlooked at this point in time. And I think it's one of those ones that should be revisited because this is definitely a film that should be reevaluated. If we can take the time to go back and find the merits of Halloween 3, I, I think the genre fan should really give Quick and the Dead a second look or a third look just to go back and see how it holds up. Because after watching this this weekend, uh, yeah, this is a great film. This is something that I really enjoyed and one that I do highly recommend. And that's the great thing about going into Bookman's. I have such a, this slightly specific but very open-ended uh, kind of adventure that I'm looking to, or um, quest that I'm on, rather. And they've had it. And they actually had something much cooler than I was expecting to find. So remember, Bookman's, they have your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, it's such a bizarre footnote in that mm-hmm. story. And it is mm-hmm. something that it it's kind of like this this piece of low-lying fruit. Once I saw the story, it's it, why hasn't this been explored yet? It just seems like something that it's such a fascinating Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's this unturned stone, this thing that nobody has dove into. Yeah, yet. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, there's gonna be those who are like, well, you know, you can't, you know, made up all of these things and you, that's wrong. And she didn't kill these other people. And I was like, you know, I think that those people would be missing the point. And I think that again, it's, it's, it's this movie is about Eileen at the end of her life, casting herself as the reluctant heroine of her own film noir. But, that that is the conceit of it. And hopefully people will, some people will understand that that's what we're doing and that they don't see it as another, you know, whatever, shameless exercise in exploiting somebody. Cause that's never what I've ever been about. It doesn't uh, come across that way. I, and okay. and the, movie, that. <laughs> and the movie doesn't, if anything, it's really explicit that the movie is showing you one thing and then telling you something that's completely the opposite of it. It's saying, this is, mm-hmm. these are the facts of what happened. 
This right. is, you know, he never talked about this again and he wasn't murdered. Like that's very explicit in the movie. Okay. And so it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's and, and you do you wonder, you know, when you haven't, you know, for somebody like yourself, seeing it cold, seeing it without coming into it without any preconceived ideas of what it what, what you're about to watch, and you had no idea what the movie was gonna be. And I think a lot of people now on the internet or whatever are like, well, what is this movie and why is she young and so beautiful? And hopefully those questions are answered as you watch the film. I don't know that she was ever young and beautiful like Peyton List, but she sees herself like that. She's telling that version. It works. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting idea of like how we see ourselves as opposed to what the world sees. And I think that was a real kind of thing of, with Eileen Mornis. I don't think she saw herself as that hideous face, monster with the teeth and the, like, I, I don't know if she looked in the mirror and saw any of that. You know, I think she saw somebody who, you know, was a victim and wrongly accused or, you know, a product of the system and that she was being terrorized by the jailers and she was being terrorized by people all through the course of her life. And I think she just saw herself as the ultimate victim. I think there's part of that's true. And some of it is she victimized herself and others. Well, there's also perception is something that's really, um, it's difficult to get your head around because there's the way that people see you. Um, and then there's that thing that we all see in the mirror that when we, we have those things. And so it's like, okay, I don't want the world to see this. What am I going to project outwards that'll help cover this up? And whether it's, right. we all have those right. things and it, I, who knows what she actually saw when she, she presented herself as somebody who didn't see that, but right. was that the reality of it? We never know because. Yeah, we'll never know. And I think that's the interesting question about people like Eileen. And I think that's why they become kind of these indelible you know, characters in our, in our, storytelling you know, well it's important no to examine those ideas and there's something that's actually deeply human about this story that is that you can while not see all of yourself in a film like this there's enough here that you can most of us have had some degree of trauma in our lives life is not easy right? it's going to be difficult and you overcome that how mm -hmm. you do it what, what's the, t the story that you tell yourself that you tell other people when right. you're relaying that trauma is it hundred percent accurate probably not because you I, told the right. story so many times right you know and it's I yeah and i think again yes a hundred percent and i think that that this, you know, this movie speaks to that idea of, of what we want others to see, you know? and i think eileen wanted to be kind of the master of her own destiny or her own legacy and she yeah. was frustrated that she wasn't going to be that you know so i thought oh wouldn't it have been interesting had she created her story you know because this guy is kind of oh pressing her for like oh and a scoop and something new something you haven't heard and then she gets into this and she continues to kind of it just gets crazier in a way as it goes on yeah. um and more larger than life and hopefully the audience at that point is along the ride but also knowing oh this is all just in her head she's she's manipulating system because that's what she liked to do you know i think she liked to uh, you know i think she she knew she could play the part of that evil i think those moments where she comes undone and, mm -hmm. and like loses her cool or her shit she uh i think it always 
always, it always seemed sort of calculated to me, like that she knew in a weird way what she was doing, you know, and, it, and it, she knew that would either get a reaction or get her what she hoped were more privileges or yeah. get more attention put on her case. So I don't know, again, she was such a weird, um, divisive figure because people, people see so many different things in her. And I think that's what just makes her an interesting character. And I, I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And this is, I, I'm genuinely shocked by how accessible I think this movie is, that it is something oh, cool. that you're, you're, Thank you. you're telling people right away what this is. Um, when they turn it on, if you were to just come across it and you see the first minute of it and you have all these, her telling her point of view through these classic 40s 50s film noir stories and you're setting mm -hmm. it up perfectly that even though the movie deviates from that where it starts in a more realistic right home to some degree and then right. as, by the time you get to the the full-on psycho sequence towards the <laughs> third act of the film mm -hmm. you realize that you're in something completely different and the movie's telegraphed right. it's headed that way the whole time but right. it's easy to lose yourself in this story. And that's right. Well, good. Yeah. And that's the intention. You know, I think I was thinking of movies like usual suspects. Too. Sure. Yeah. That's certainly a good example of the approach, you know, where you've been fed all of this stuff and then you're like, Oh, come on. <laughs> Kaiser says, <Soze>, a come on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that kind of like, spinning the, the reality or twisting it in a way because the character is who they are they would tell it from this point um, and I, hopefully people get it I, I i'm glad you enjoyed it and i really really seriously man thank you for always being so kind and, and have such great, great questions i really appreciate that no 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 thank you for taking the time and i i sure. I, I love your stuff man it's been Thanks, one of those man. things i've loved watching the progression of your films over the you know last couple oh, of years and seeing where you've come from and it feels like you're you're one of the good ones and your stuff's just getting better and better so it's thank great you man see. i appreciate it i'm gonna um i'm gonna dive back into the realm of documentaries in the next few months because i haven't what, done one in a while what's the what's the next series you're gonna are you gonna do the next definitive story um i'm not tackling well i mean it is a franchise in a way um, but what I'm telling, I'm going to tell the story of the actual haunting that inspired Poltergeist. Movie Poltergeist. Awesome. So that's something that's on the front burner now. And then um, I'm also quietly kind of going around. We're planning on doing a retrospective on the life and career of somebody who, or, you know, maybe not directly, but indirectly, gave me a career, which was um, uh, producer, writer, Deborah Hill. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's pretty direct. I mean, yeah. Uh... I think it's pretty direct line to my life, but you know, and I, and I, and I knew her not well, but we knew each other and she was incredibly kind when I was chosen to write Halloween six, she actually called me and uh, said, oh, I hope you do great so that they can make more of them. <laughs> Seven, eight, nine. And now look, we're up to 12 or 13. Yeah. I think it's 12. Uh, I've lost track. But um, yeah. I don't know. I just think it's an interest. It'll be it'll be interesting to kind of uncover her past. You know, again, like I don't know much about like where did, we know Deborah Hill came from the town of Haddonfield, New Jersey. But what got her in the movie industry? When did she come to Los Angeles? What was her real aspiration? I know she started as a script script supervisor for John Carpenter, and that's how they met, and and that that relationship was born. 
um, on assault in Precinct 13, but I just yeah. want to know a little bit more about her prior to that. And, you know, and, and, and not only the John Carpenter movies, but everything that she did subsequent, because she had an amazing career. She was a trailblazing producer, writer, and that just didn't exist so much back then. You know what I mean? She was one of the very few that kind of broke through that glass ceiling, you know? Um, so, yeah, I just want to do something that pays tribute to her. Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope